Mark 7, 24 to 37. It will be in your little sheets. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive out the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus went to Galilee. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up into heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them to not tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thanks, Celeste. The gospel is for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The gospel's for Australia, it's for Malaysia, China, South Africa, India, Germany, Sri Lanka. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The people of God is a transnational people, a global people. If you're a Christian, you have brothers and sisters in Christ, in Kenya and in Canada and in Singapore and in Sweden. But God is not done yet. There are still too many people and too many people groups who haven't heard the name of Jesus. And that's why you're here. So this passage tonight, it's about Jesus healing two people. It's here for you and me to help us, to urge us, to encourage us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So tonight we're going to have uh, two stories, a glory and a challenge. Two stories, a glory and a challenge. So let's look at uh, the two stories first. The two stories are very similar in lots of ways. In one, Jesus kind of has this spa, this little interaction with a, a really determined, witty woman. And in the other, he demonstrates this kind of tender, gentle compassion for a deaf and mute man. Two exchanges, two stories, two interactions, which together contribute to a glorious message of hope and a challenge to respond and be part of something really big. 
This passage comes at a moment in Mark's gospel where Jesus has been really busy. He's been preaching and teaching, sending out his followers. He's been debating with the Jewish leaders. And he's been moving around near Capernaum, which is a Jewish area. It's in Israel. And a lot of the teaching and debating that he's been doing has been about the Jewish law and his authority to preach, to teach in the name of God. And then Christ makes a really interesting decision to leave this Jewish area around Capernaum and to go north into Gentile territories. And the next few chapters of Mark's gospel are all about the ministry that Jesus does in these Gentile areas outside Israel. He's ministering among people who aren't part of God's covenant nation, people who aren't waiting for the Messiah. So I don't know how, how good your geography is, but uh, there's Israel uh, alongside the Mediterranean Sea, the, the promised land that God has blessed his people with. The Jews had a remarkably deep and a spiritual connection with this land. It gave them their, their identity and assured them of God's covenant promise to them. Obviously, this, this week, right, we've been heartbroken seeing the unfolding violence in Israel and in Gaza. And one of the key drivers behind the, the conflict, the tragedy that's happening there is the, the deep and kind of identity-giving level of connection that both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people f have with that land. And that, that's where, where Jesus is. He's been teaching throughout that land, throughout Israel. But then here in this passage, he goes outside. Gentile land, idol worship land, unclean land, dangerous land, foreign land. That's where Jesus goes. Partly, it's to get some rest. Jesus' is big news, he's just fed the 5,000 people. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. And the Pharisees, by this point too, they have really got it in for him. But it's, it's not his time yet. So he's kind of retreating out of Israel into Gentile territory for some peace and quiet, to lay low for a bit. Have a look at uh, verse 24, the, the start of the passage. Jesus left that place, went to the vicinity of Tyre. So now we're in Gentile land. He entered a house, did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. He still can't escape attention. And in this house, in Gentile land, a woman approaches him. She's a Gentile woman. Jesus shouldn't really be talking to Gentiles at all. Definitely not a Gentile woman. When Matthew tells this story in his gospel account, he even notes that she's a Canaanite who are the enemies of God's people for centuries. But nonetheless, this woman gets Jesus' attention and she's got one thing that she wants from this miracle worker. She, she falls down at his feet. It's kind of awkward with all the people around, but he, he engages with her as she begs him to drive a demon out of her daughter. But Jesus' reply is unexpected, right? Maybe you felt this as we read the passage. 
What does he say to her? Verse 27. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Whoa. (laughs) This feels a little intense from Jesus. Maybe he really does need some rest. (laughs) What's, What's Jesus doing here? He's, he's, not, he's not snapping at her, right? He's not insulting her. Don't, we don't need to deplatform Jesus here. It's okay. But he does seem to be saying no to her, right? So what's he doing? He's, he's using a household image to communicate to her that his ministry is first for Israel and then for the Gentiles, He says, first, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Right? So in this household image, Israel are God's children. That's that's language that the Old Testament uses of God's people lots in Exodus 4, Deuteronomy 32, lots of places. So what Jesus is communicating here, really importantly, is a sequence, not a preference. Right? A sequence, not a preference. The children of Israel eat their fill first, and then the leftovers are fed to the pet dogs in the house, and they eat their fill. Jesus' ministry is being offered first to the Jews, and then in good time it will be offered as well to the Gentiles. But seemingly that day hasn't yet come, and so he says no to her. She's not, she's not having that, though. She's really determined. She's really smart. She shoots back. She goes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Right? So she's saying, okay, maybe the children eat first and then the dogs after. But, you know, kids are messy. They spill crumbs under the table, which the dogs eat even while the children are still eating. Don't stop the children eating. Don't interrupt your meal plans. Just let me get a scrap from under the table. Now, I can tell you firsthand uh, the truth of what she's saying. Here are uh, my children eating. There are plenty of scraps that fall from the table. Uh, And here is my dog happily cleaning up those scraps, not even looking a bit guilty coming out from under the table, having eaten all their scraps, right? This This is what she's communicating. She's not trying to deny God's special... We should take that slide off because you'll all be distracted. (laughs) She's not trying to deny God's special relationship, his special dealings with Israel, the people of God. She's not trying to distract Jesus from his messianic mission, but she's just hoping that she might get a crumb from under the table, just this one thing from Jesus while she's got him. It reminds me of, of another woman in Jesus' ministry, the, the bleeding woman who touches the edge of Jesus' cloak. She's so aware of the incredible power in him that just a touch will fulfill her deepest need. This woman's response to Jesus is, is humble and it's bold and, and Jesus loves it. He says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She gets the scrap from under the table. She gets what she was looking for. Jesus shows such compassion that God's 
blessings to the Gentiles are kind of brought forward, she gets home and her daughter is free. She gets to be part of something really big, something beyond herself, something which is still partially hidden, but which is going to change the world. Is, is the map. Uh, so then Jesus leaves that place and he goes to another Gentile territory called the Decapolis. So you can see the red part, the kind of the southern bit is, is Judah and then the Samaria, which used to be the northern kingdom of Israel before it was destroyed. Then there's Galilee. That's, that's still part of Israel in the north there. But Jesus crosses over the river and he goes into the Decapolis that you can see kind of on the right there. Gentile territory still. And Jesus has another exchange with a Gentile. Again, he gets begged for his help. Again, he ministers to a person who's not one of God's chosen people of Israel. That woman found a scrap from under the table, seemingly so rare, so hard to get, and yet in the very next story, another scrap falls from the table. It's a really different exchange. A man is brought into Jesus' presence. It reminds me of the, the story of the man who's lowered through the roof by his friends, right? And like that man, this, this one too has crippling physical disabilities. He's, he's deaf, he can't hear, and he's mute, he can't speak. He desperately needs Jesus' help. And the thing, the thing that I love about this little story is Jesus' compassion, a love for this man. You know, sometimes when Jesus does healings, he does them in front of a crowd to show his power. Sometimes he does them in front of the Jewish leaders to, to kind of spark a debate with them. But here, he takes the man away, verse 33, away from the crowd. Maybe the crowd was overwhelming the man. Maybe Jesus wanted to be able to hear him, kind of stammer out the few words that he was able. Whatever the reason, Jesus and this man are going to share their moment together alone. And for this man who can't hear and who can't speak, Jesus communicates with him as he can understand. He touches the man's ears and the man's tongue, indicating to him what he's about to do. Weirdly to us, he spits as well, which kind of feels a bit gross, but in ancient uh, kind of Near Eastern religion at the time, uh, the spit of healers and, and miracle workers was seen to have healing powers. So Jesus is basically using symbols that the man understands to, to explain to him what he's going to do. He's, he's signing to this deaf man. Your ears, your tongue, I will heal them. And alone, away from the crowd, in front of the deaf man, Jesus looks up to heaven. He prays in dependence upon his father. He sighs deeply. And he says, be opened. 
I was wondering why Jesus says this. Why does he say, Ephaphtha, be opened? As if it's like a, like a spell, magic words. I'm not entirely sure why. It might simply be that he's kind of accommodating to this man's pagan expectations. Remember, this man's not a worshipper of Yahweh. Accommodating to his expectations for how magical healing would work. But I wonder if this word, be opened, which communicates all that this suffering man had so deeply desired for so long, I wonder, is that the very first word this man ever heard? You know those, those YouTube videos where a child receives a bionic ear and they hear their parents speak to them for the first time? It's, it's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful moment. Deeply emotional and significant moments. I think, I hope, that the first voice this man heard in his life was that of Jesus saying to him, be opened. Verse 35, at this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. The the faith of his friends to bring him to Jesus is rewarded. He is healed. And he begins to proclaim to others what Jesus has done for him. He gets swept up into something bigger than himself. And so he gives what he can to be part of it. It's it's a great passage, right? These two wonderful stories of love and power going out from Jesus to bring freedom to these two Gentiles who were brought before him in faith. But why are they here? Why are these stories here? Why did Mark choose them? Why did God choose them to be read by billions of people across the centuries and to be read by you and me tonight? Well, here are the the two things that we said, I think this, this passage has for us a glory and a challenge. A glory and a challenge. So, I wonder, has anyone, this is like a hands up moment, has anyone been to the Three Gorges Dam in China? No one, ah, oh, soaping. Oh, one, yes. <laughs> this is the Three Gorges Dam in China. It's the biggest dam in the world. It's so enormous that the area which flooded behind it displaced 1.2 million people. That's bigger than Adelaide. There were literally cities at the bottom of the reservoir behind this dam. It's huge. And a dam wall holds back all the weight, all the, the pressure, all the power of that water. This is the Hoover Dam uh, in the USA. It's so huge to hold back the pressure of the water behind it that the concrete they poured in to build it is still soft in the middle. It's taking 125 years to harden right through its centre. And dam walls, they're called walls, but they're not really like walls. They're more like pyramids, like hills, to, to strengthen them against the force of the water that's pushing on them, trying to get out. And so because of the vast pressure that's pushing on dam walls, they have what's called a spillway. And a spillway is a small outlet at the base of the wall. 
where the engineers can let out a certain volume of water at a time, depending on how full the dam is and then the pressure on the wall. So if you were to stand below the Hoover Dam or, or any dam, you wouldn't be standing on dry ground. There would be a, a small stream flowing from the spillway and you would have no idea what was behind that wall in front of you, except for the small stream of water flowing out from it. So even though it's a small amount of water, right, it comes churning out of the spillway because of the pressure that's pushing on it from behind. And if you're standing there below the dam, the spillway is the only indication of the vast amount of water behind the dam. Okay, here's, here's the point. <laughs> here's the glory, here's the, the, the world-changing truth of these passages. In Jesus, God's love for the world is spilling out. God's, God's covenant love, his love for Israel, has for centuries been reservoired. It's, it's been bounded to the nation of Israel. But these stories are water escaping through the spillway. They're, they're a hint, a foretaste of the love of God, which is soon to burst forth and flood the nations. Since his promise to Abraham, God has been lavishing his love on these people, on the, the covenant people of Israel. It was always his plan for his love to be global. The dam was never meant to hold back the water forever. John Calvin said it like this. He said, at no time certainly did God shut up his grace among the Jews in such a manner as not to bestow a small taste of it on the Gentiles. These stories aren't the first Gentiles who've been loved and blessed by God. Moses' Gentile father-in-law who offers sacrifices to God and eats bread with the elders of Israel. Ruth, the Moabite, who becomes an ancestor of Jesus. The way that God cares for foreigners in the law for his old covenant people. He promises that if they worship him, he will bring them to his holy mountain, give them joy in his house of prayer. Remember right, right back to God's kind of foundational promise to Abraham, right? He says, your descendants will be many. Yep, that's the people of Israel. They will have a land. Yep, that's the land of Israel. And through them, the world will be blessed. Streams of, of God's love escaping the boundaries of Israel, signaling the vast weight of love behind it. And here in the life of Jesus, that stream is picking up force. The damn wall is beginning to crack. When does, it, when does it burst? When does the damn wall burst? Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus' followers, that small number of Jews, and they start to speak the language of all the people who are in Jerusalem. Peter preaches, 3,000 are saved. This kind of eruptive flow of the gospel begins from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's always been God's plan. The prophets in the Old Testament, they got special insight into this from God. 
Ezekiel 47 is a picture of a vast river coming from the temple of God, the altar in the temple flowing deeper and deeper and deeper to the ends of the earth. Or this verse uh, from Zechariah 14, verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, and half of it to the west, to the Mediterranean, in summer and in winter. Right? It's everywhere, all the time. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. In Jesus, God's love for the world is spilling out. And you and I, we kind of know this already, right? Because we have the whole story of the Bible. But imagine being one of the first people to read this. Imagine being those early Gentile believers to whom this book was written. Stories like this would have been amazing for those people. They were often facing teachers that wanted them to be more Jewish or questioning their place in the people of God because they weren't Jewish. If you were one of those Gentile believers, you would have read this and thought, yes. Jesus serves that Gentile woman. He serves that Gentile man. He can serve me. God's love for the nations is God's glory. Because it means that there is one God over all, the creator of heaven and earth. It means that the curse of Babel, the confusion of humanity, is being undone in Jesus. It means that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is burst open and we can be one people in Jesus. It means that God has kept his covenant to Abraham. And God's love for the Gentiles is his glory because it means salvation for you and for me. This, this woman, she got the crumb from the table that she wanted, right? What do we get? We get the wedding banquet of the Lamb. We get to feast with God forever, called in from the streets and the fields. We are the poor, the lawless Gentiles. We get to sit with our bridegroom at the great eternal feast, savoring every blessing that he gives us. For centuries, these, these scraps of God's blessing escaped Israel to the Gentiles. But now there is abundant, lavish food. We eat all we want. This man, he got to hear the voice of Jesus. He got to speak Jesus' praise. What about us? We will get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Our lips will cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb in never-ending praise. These healings in Mark 7 are just small streams of the living water, which from Pentecost until today is being poured out through the nations.
So we've got to ask, right, if receiving God's love isn't based on being ethnically Jewish, what is it based on? It's based on on faith. That's how we respond to the grace of God, with faith. And you've prob- if you're a Christian, you've probably heard that a lot of times before, right? Salvation is by faith and not by works. So I wanna, what I want to kind of challenge us with here, this is the, the challenge, the last uh, heading, is that not only is God's love received by faith and not by being ethnically Jewish, but God's love flows through the world by the persistent faith of others. Did you notice in these two stories, the two people who receive the love of Jesus, who receive his ministry and his healing, they don't ask for it. These two who experience the overflow love of God for the Gentiles, they don't ask for it. What happens? They're both brought before Jesus by someone else. The demon-possessed girl is, is freed from her oppression because of the determination of her mother. The, the deaf and mute man is restored because his friends introduced him to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him. So, if God's heart is for the nations, if his love is flowing to the ends of the earth, and you and I already know that love, we know the joy, the hope of life in him, what is there for us to do? You and I are here to bring people to meet Jesus. To beg him with all the determination and and winsomeness and desperation that we can muster. To beg Jesus to free them, to heal them, to give them life. To save them. If God's love is flowing through the whole world, if God's love is for everyone, then God's love is for your best friend, it's for your unbelieving parents, it's for the the colleague who ridicules your faith. If God loves not just Israel, but every nation and tribe and tongue, then he doesn't just love us, he loves apathetic Aussies, he loves unreached Muslims, He loves hardened atheists. And that the thing that's so great about this this passage that I find so convicting and, and inspiring and challenging is that when we call on God to do this, he hears us. He hears our prayer. This little girl didn't reach out. The deaf man didn't bring himself to Jesus. When we bring others before Jesus, he hears us. It actually does something. Now, that's not a promise that God will answer yes to every prayer. But it is a promise that he loves to hear you. His heart is genuinely engaged with yours when you pray to him. 
He truly responds to your prayer. And of course, the other kind of terrifying side of that coin, right, if our prayer actually does something, is that our lack of prayer does something as well. We can bring people before God, we can introduce people to Jesus so that they can have their lives changed by him, or we cannot. We can look for every opportunity to witness the love of Jesus to those in our lives, or we cannot. And either way, it does something. It makes a difference. God listens and he responds when we play the role that he has given us in the overflow of his love to the ends of the earth. So let me, let me pray for us and for the role that he gives us in his great big glorious plan. God, we thank you that your love for the nations means that we can be saved. Thank you that your plan was always to flood the whole world with your love. And thank you that you use us in that plan. Please do use us, Lord. Let us be people like this woman and like the friends of this man who introduce the people we love to Jesus, who plead with him to meet them, to change their lives, to save them. We pray that you would use us to flood the earth with your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.